Climate change is one of the top priorities of the incoming presidential administration. President-elect Biden calls it an existential threat and has proposed a number of major agenda items, including recommitting the United States to the Paris Climate Agreement and working toward so-called net zero carbon emissions by the year 2050. The plan draws on some of the elements of the Green New Deal, which was proposed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in early 2019. And Biden's also incorporated it into his overall agenda for the U.S. economy, which we discussed on this podcast earlier this week, Monday. Uh, this includes a major focus on union jobs, American manufacturing, quote unquote, buy American, and so on. And there's an attempt in the way the incoming administration portrays this to show it as a uh, to show the climate and energy agenda as a huge opportunity as they put it the biden plan is to rebuild a modern sustainable infrastructure and equitable uh, clean energy future but beneath this agenda is a set of deeper philosophical premises that motivate the democrats views on environmental issues well, welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're going to be discussing these ideas. This is the third in a series we've been doing this week on critiquing the philosophic ideas, shaping the Biden administration's agenda. Today, we're going, going to be talking about their energy and environmental agenda. My name is Ben Baer. I'm going to be joined shortly by my colleague at ARI, uh, Keith Lockett, who's an ARI senior fellow. Keith, are you out there? Hey, Ben. Hi, Keith. So I thought we should start our conversation today by uh, setting a little bit of context on, especially on some of the scientific issues uh, that are at stake in debates about the environment and energy. Um, when we hear about climate change, it's often uh, in the it's framed in a really apocalyptic way. Uh, a couple of years ago, you had people like Greta Thunberg and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez uh, saying the world was going to end by the year 2030 if we don't do something to address climate change. Now, you're a trained scientist who's followed this debate about climate change for many years. Could you shed a little bit of light on this debate? Uh, I mean, I assume the world isn't literally going to end, but is it still a some kind of existential threat uh, as, as these uh, proponents of environmental ideas often frame it? Yeah, no, I, I, so I think even that is a huge exaggeration. Uh, this is, so first of all, I mean, you know, there's no question that man-made greenhouse gas emissions are, are contributing to a moderate warming of the earth. You know, I don't think there's any kind of serious disagreement with that claim, but this is not a world ending apocalypse. And, you know, the, I think what people ignore is that changes to the climate are not even the most important factors to consider when you think about what is required to advance human well-being. So I think one of the things that I've always no remarked is, is missing from this climate debate is a sense of history and a historical perspective on these things. People completely take for granted the, the quality of life that we enjoy today and the, the degree to which we're protected from climate disasters by the industrial development that we have today. If you think about what life was like before the industrial revolution, you know, before we had all this technology and engineering and infrastructure and all these things that, that keep us safe from the climate, people were, people were you know, subject to the vagaries of climate in ways that we can't even imagine today. And do you think about um, undeveloped countries today you know, today in the world where people don't have access to electricity and, and you know, clean water and this sort of thing. Um, people are way more vulnerable to climate disasters in those kinds of situations. Basically, you know, because of the industrial revolution and the advances in, in science, technology, medicine, engineering, we are way more resilient to the climate today than we have ever been in human history. So what we, what we constantly get is this perspective that because of industrial development, because of the, because of the um, carbon emissions that result from industrial development, we're more vulnerable to the climate, you know, that, that we face all these climate disasters. But exactly the opposite is true. Um, because it's because of industrial development that we're safer from, from the climate than we've ever been in human history. 
And just, you know, if you think about examples of this, there's, and, and you can multiply these, uh, you know, there's a, a zillion fold. You know, if you think about a hurricane that hits an undeveloped region in Southeast Asia, you know, in Indonesia or Bangladesh or a country like that, it, it's, and there, are, and there are examples of this in the last decades, you, you see death toll, a death toll in the numbers of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people in the wake of these kinds of hurricanes. When a hurricane hits the US, you know, the toll is orders of magnitude lower. I mean, the worst one that we saw in recent years was Katrina. And I think, were you, were you in New Orleans at that time? No, later, but I, I, I had an anecdote I'll share about that, but go ahead. Yeah, so, so, but the point is it's orders of magnitude lower. And the reason is that we have, we have the, the, the um, industrial civilization that we have keeps us safe from these things. We have advanced warning systems and infrastructure. We have roads, we can get out, you know. Um, so the point is, Climate change is real, but it's something we can adapt to. And it's not something that requires a total transformation of our entire economy to eliminate carbon emissions. You know, whereas this is what we hear all the time. What we need to do is promote industrial development and the political freedom that makes it possible. Whereas what the environmentalist movement is advocating is exactly the opposite. Um, that the only path forward in the face of possible changes to the climate is a total decarbonization of the economy. And we can talk in a minute about what that actually looks like in reality. So the, so, and this is what's underlying the incoming administration's climate and energy policy. The whole starting point for their climate agenda is the standard alarmist position of the environmentalist movement, you know, and then, and then it all goes downhill from there. <laughs> so. Yeah, you asked about uh, Katrina. No, I was in I was in New Orleans for uh, the better part of a decade, and but I was there for Hurricane Isaac, which happened in 2011 or 2010. Can't remember which year. Um, it, it's, it's an interesting uh, experience. What what happens when power goes out through the entire city? Uh, the electrical grid goes down. What is the best thing to have on hand when this happens? A full tank of gas. You know, uh, which you can use not only to get around to get the food that you need to, to live, but uh, to charge your phone if you want to stay in touch with people. Uh, of course, it's 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 a full tank of gas they don't want us to have if they're going to decarbonize the entire economy. Now, is uh, is the use of fossil fuels contributing to climate change and maybe uh, even causing there to be more hurricanes? Maybe so, but as you're suggesting, if you want to be able to deal with hurricanes. There's nothing better to have than access to fossil fuels. It's a it's a cheap, dense source of energy, which you don't, and you don't you don't have access to charging your batteries when a hurricane tear da tears down the entire power system. Another example here is uh, we evacuated for a few days, came back to a city without power. The first thing we see coming back is a parking lot full of electrical trucks that are there to rebuild. The power grid. I mean, just as far as the eye could see, trucks to rebuild the power grid. Trucks that are again powered by fossil fuels, which you wouldn't have access to as easily if you were going to decarbonize the economy in the way uh, that you want to. So, yeah, I mean, having access to something like fossil fuels is essential for being able to deal with uh, whatever kinds of climate vulnerability we have. And I, I mean, I've witnessed this firsthand. Yeah. But we should maybe now uh, transition to talking about just practically speaking, what it is that Biden wants to do to uh, implement this kind of clean energy plan. Uh, what's he proposing in this area? Yeah, so you mentioned that this is a series of podcasts that we're doing this week. And on Monday, you know, so yesterday there was, the, you, you had talked with um, ARI senior fellow Ankar Gatte about Biden's healthcare plan. On Monday, so the Ilan Giorno and Ankar Gatte kind of set the context by talking in general about the incoming administration's economic plans. And one of the things they observed is that part of the reason Biden prevailed in the Democratic primaries and then in the election is that he presented himself as sort of safe and moderate. You know, he's not a radical like Bernie Sanders or, or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And uh, Ilan and Ankar also noticed that, or, or made the observation that what this ends up meaning in practice is that there's sort of a radical wing of the party that, that sets the terms of the debate. And, and they do it by advancing an agenda that's most consistent with the shared kind of self-sacrificial moral premises underlying all of their views. 
But then you have someone like Biden who agrees with the basic moral premises. He just wants to move the country in that direction just a little more slowly. And, and we see that here with the climate and energy policies. So what are these, what are these ideas that the more radical members of the party are pushing that the Biden people are then trying to present in moderate form? Yeah, so you mentioned, you mentioned the Green New Deal. Um, so this was, you know, less than two years ago, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez put forward this new ideal. And this is a really radical and really destructive proposal. It's basically, it's, it's, a, it's a massively impractical proposal to get to, the way she puts it is 100% clean and renewable energy in 10 years, which sounds great unless until you look at the details and see that what it actually means is, you know, sort of cutting off our energy. So, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, it's, it's basically a massive government program to completely transform the whole energy economy, you know, involving trillions of dollars of infrastructure. Um, and that's the plan that AOC put forward. Now, Biden's plan, so again, it's not, it's not, it doesn't go all the way. It's not quite as radical as, as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal. But I would say looking at some of the details of Biden's plan, it's equally out of touch with reality. <laughs> well, that's a strange thing to say because it's the, the Democrats are, are often claiming it's the other side, it's the Republicans who are anti-science, who are, who are all about alternative facts. They're the ones who are out of touch with reality. Maybe they're right about that too, but what facts of reality would you say uh, Biden's out of touch with here? Well, so so all of these, um, all of these plans. So the goal of all of these plans, and, and this goes back decades. I mean, Al Gore put forward an ener you know energy proposals, a plan for getting to carbon-free energy. AOC put forward the Green New Deal. Now we have the Biden plan. I mean, ultimately, the goal for of all of these plans is, is they want us to stop getting energy from sources that emit carbon dioxide. And they all claim that this can be done using the so-called renewable sources, using solar energy, wind energy, that sort of thing. But what, the, what this ignores is it, it, it flies in the face of the reality of how we actually produce energy today and where our energy comes from. More than 80% of the energy that we use today comes from burning fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas. So for all of the subsidies and government windfalls and effort that have been thrown at alternative forms of energy for decades, that number has not really changed much at all. You know, the vast majority of our energy has come from carbon fuels and still comes from carbon fuels. Now, a significant portion, another say 10 or 11% of our energy comes from sources like nuclear power and hydroelectric power. And these are carbon free fuels, carbon free energy sources in terms of their operation. You know, when you're running a nuclear plant, it doesn't emit carbon dioxide the way uh, a coal fired power plant does, for example. But, but these sources are opposed by the most hardcore environmentalists for various reasons. So, you know, if you add all that up, more than 90% of our energy comes from sources that environmentalists are, are adamant that we have to stop using. And if you look at the amount of energy that we actually get from solar power and wind power today, it's like a piddling three or 4% of our energy comes from this. And, the, and again, again, this is after decades of subsidies and mandates requiring that we use these kinds of energies and other forms of government support. So it sounds like you're saying, given how much of our current energy usage is based on carbon-based energy sources, then for them to implement their goals, they would either need to uh, dramatically reduce the amount of energy we consume, which means we're not going to get to use all kinds of modern conveniences, or there'd need to be some kind of miracle in the development of alternative technologies. Now, why rule that out? Wouldn't the wouldn't the defenders of these plans say basically, well, the alternative energy technology just hasn't been given a chance yet. It needs to be better developed, made more efficient. And that's the whole point of these investments that Biden administration wants to make. Yeah. And, and so I'm not going to say categorically that there's no po no possible breakthrough that we could ever happen that could make sources like this useful. But there are you know, there are sort of basic reasons stemming from 
you know, just the fundamental physics and the, and the economics of this for why this is not really likely to happen. The problem with solar and wind is that these are really, really useless, impractical forms of energy. Um, you know, they call them 21st century technologies, but, you know, you're talking about windmills. I mean, that's like 12th century technology, right? Um, you know, the problem is that they're, they're unreliable, right? So, so if you're talking about generating electricity, one of the things that you require is, is stability, right? Um, an electric grid requires a steady, even flow of energy in order not to, you know, have spikes and brownouts and shortages and all this kind of thing. But what you have when you, when you add wind capacity to, a, to an electric grid, you know, wind comes and goes, right? You've, you've got, you, 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 you're, you're adding a fluctuating source of energy to something that really has to be stable. Um, and you don't have, and, and uh, for something like solar, you know, there's only certain places in the world where, where you can even get energy from solar power. And, you know, it's, it's only available at certain times of day. So again, it's not, this is not stable energy that you're adding to the grid. The other fundamental issue is that these are extremely dilute forms of energy. So in order, to, in order to get substantial amounts of energy, you have to gather and concentrate that energy over massive land areas. And this is why you see, you know, when they wanna build a solar power facility that, uh, you know, generates, you know, any kind of significant amount of energy, they, they have to have, it's basically an industrial development that covers acres and acres and acres of land. Um, and that, you know, has its own problems. We can talk about that more in a minute. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. Just to give the, the devil his due on this, um, isn't this the reliability problems and the dilution problems that you're talking about, isn't this part of the reason why the Biden administration, for instance, wants to invest in batteries so that, uh, you know, to harness that power and make it storable? Uh, or do you think there's uh, problems with this proposal as well? I mean, from what I've seen, there's no, I mean, you're talking about, you're talking about, we're not just talking about little, you know, you know the battery here on my desk, you know, we're not, we're not talking about, you know, little, little cells like this. You're talking about storing, you know, enormous quantities of, of energy. Like, I mean, the, the, the kinds of batteries you would need, I mean, there's, there's a reason Tesla won out in the Edison Tesla wars over alternating current versus direct current. And, and basically because you just, you can't store that much energy. Um, like, you know, I, I know that people are working on advanced battery technologies, but this is, and again, as I said, there, there could be some kind of breakthrough that occurs, but this is not, uh, this is not something that we should be, um, building into a 10-year plan or a four, you know, Biden's talking about what he's going to do in his first term. I mean, this is not something that we should be building into a four-year plan for, for our energy future. So it's one thing to maybe build better batteries for electric cars, but then trying to uh, power 80% of the industrial economy on batteries uh, is, is quite a different order. Yeah. Um, but then what about something where there's a proven capability of powering industrial concerns, nuclear energy? Yeah, I mean, that's, so that's carbon-free, right? Right. So if people actually cared about producing carbon-free electricity, you they should be all, you know, marching in the streets to for demanding a massive scale up of nuclear energy. But but obviously that's not what we see. Um, if you again, if you look at the Green New Deal, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez was calling for a transition away from nuclear. Ultimately, there's there's language in there about about decommissioning all nuclear plants as soon as possible. Right now, Biden is not quite so bad on this. Um, you know, he does his plan does call for continuing to use existing nuclear and hydroelectricity installations kind of as long as they last because why throw away infrastructure that's already developed and so on and he does have a provision for doing research into so like advanced nuclear reactors but the premise here is that existing nuclear technology is somehow unsafe and unworkable and and we we need to be opposed to it which is which is it's you know they can have a whole discussion about that but that's that's just not true it's not true that we we can't scale up nuclear until we have advanced some kind of new advanced nuclear. Um, 
And, and the point is that scaling up nuclear is not the core of his plan. The core of his plan, he talks about, you know, installing millions of solar panels and tens of thousands of, of uh, wind turbines, right? That's the, it, it, it's, it's solar and wind, um, those forms of energy that, that all of this is, is resting on. And, uh, you know, of course, this will all be done by workers with good union jobs, right? Because apparently uh, an essential element of fighting climate change is, you know, labor agreements settled by collective bargaining, apparently. Who knew that? In California, where they've had uh, they, a, a new series of rolling uh, blackouts this past year, if you drive from Orange County to San Diego, every time you drive by the San Onofre nuclear plant, which they have now is the last, it was, it was the last nuclear plant in the state, but it's now being decommissioned and you drive by and you think, couldn't we turn this on? Uh, but uh, I guess not. So uh, I used to, uh, you talk about some anecdotes. Before that was decommissioned, I, that I used to when we would drive down the coast, um, sometimes heading to San Diego, and I would see this functioning nuclear power plant. I'd feel a little warm glow that here's at least one bright spot in our in our energy situation that we have a that this this nuclear plant is still functioning. When I heard it was going to be decommissioned, I was just ah, oh, so tragic. So it might be that uh, there are more of these blackouts in California's future. Uh, and Ooh, yeah. just to get a sense of what that might mean, um, you actually have a piece out in that just was released on our, our publication, New Ideal today, about how there's something about the current pandemic and its effect on the environment that tells us something about what a fully decarbonized uh, economy might look like. Uh, how, how did you argue for that point? Yeah, so this was an interesting data point. You know, I, I was I a couple of weeks ago I saw some news stories talking about how 2020 has seen record drops in carbon emissions. You know, there were a few headlines like 2020 historic reduction in carbon emissions. <laughs> um, but you know, all the what all the news stories point out is that this is not a good thing because it was caused by the pandemic. You know, basically the, the government lockdowns that brought the economy to a screeching halt also had the effect of massively cutting off carbon emissions. And I mean, this isn't surprising because carbon emissions are a product of economic activity. I mean, this is a, a causal relationship here, right? So, you know, my argument is that this is a cautionary tale. Like if you thought 2020 was bad, Imagine what the world would be like if we actually implement any of these massive plans to cut off our carbon emissions. And you know, there were there were people quoted in these news stories, like researchers who you know related to uh, the uh, looking at data for the climate Paris Climate Agreement. And so on. they're saying that in order to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, we would need to reduce emissions by about the same amount as we did this year. But we'd have to do that every year for the next 10 years. So imagine, you know, a pandemic level drop in economic activity happening every year for the next 10 years. I mean, how is that a solution to anything, you know? And if that happens, we're not going to be able to, uh, we're not going to be able to do our work from home or, or do lots of Zoom calls or keep watching Netflix this time because that, I mean, that's pretty power intensive. And yeah. that would be a natural candidate to, to cut. So, yeah. Um, something else that came out in the discussion on Monday was Biden's overall approach to the economy and to government and for the whole array of plans that he has. And it's a really staggering, dizzying number of different uh, plans. Uh, the, the common theme uniting every one of them was more government. No matter what the problem is, the solution is to have government do more. Uh, where do we see this in his energy and environment proposals? Yeah, I mean, that. so I've talked a little bit about what he wants to do in the energy sector and research into nuclear and so on, but most of the plan really is all about the huge, quote, investments that the Biden government will make in all sectors of the economy, you know, in order to make it more, quote, sustainable and, quote, equitable, right? And so, so most of the plan is is more connected with his the rest of his economic policy because it's all about you know creating millions of good union jobs in various ways right rebuilding America's crumbling infrastructure, investing in the auto industry to scale up American production of electric cars, 
you know, building zero emission public transportation options. You know, he's got all kinds of provisions about upgrading buildings, building sustainable homes, doing sustainable agriculture, all these, all these kinds of things. Um, it, it, these are, it's in all these different areas that um, he's trying to change our climate and energy policy. Um, so, you know, the Green New Deal had all these references to this being sort of, you know, our generation's moonshot, you know, and there's a similar tone here. So he Biden, the Biden plan talks about, you know, quote, historic investment in clean energy innovation. And he compares it to the Apollo program. So they all view this, they all try to draw on the moon landing as this, this great example of how government investment made this incredible achievement possible. And that's what we need to do here. It's an interesting comparison because of course this plan wouldn't allow for actual moonshots given the amount of carbon rockets will spew into the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, incidentally got a correction from someone on Zoom pointing out San Onofre in California is not the last plant, nuclear plant in California, actually Diablo Canyon is, I stand corrected on that. It's from someone who lives in San Clemente, I think, so he would know. Um, I wanted to say a word, Keith, about the, uh, the whole idea of government investment that uh, Biden's various proposals play fast and loose with. There's something wrong with the very idea just on a philosophic level, because what investment means uh, in an ordinary sense is taking wealth that you haven't consumed and lending it to someone else who's engaged in some kind of productive activity in the hope that they're going to create a value and you're going to get a return from it. But what government investment so-called means is basically taking that same unconsumed wealth, taking basically our stock seed and giving it to somebody else to consume rather than for the sake of production. Now, it doesn't look like that right away when you talk about investment in something like alternative energy, because it's true that that's money that's then being used to build things being used to build solar panels or whatever. And you might think, well, this is productive. But the issue is that if, if, if building these things wouldn't actually turn a profit in a free market, if, if nobody would volunteer to buy these things or use them, uh, then it's not actually creating any value. And it actually represents net consumption. I mean, it's, it's, it's like building up, you know, piling up a stack of rocks for no end that actually serves human purposes. And that's especially true when we're talking about energy, which is one of the most requirement, most important requirements, uh, uh, most most important inputs to a productive process. If you're uh, creating forms of energy that actually take more energy to produce than you can derive from them, and here I have in mind quite possibly many of the batteries that they're trying to build, that's not productive. It's actually a form of consumption, and not so that means it it doesn't count as as investment. Um, but know, I it, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think there's there's a relation here to what you, uh, a relation of what you're saying to the Apollo program itself, because there's there's a way in which the whole motive of the Apollo program was not that there's some sort of productive ends that people can pursue here. It was really there was it was sort of done for the sake of prestige and allegedly competing with the Soviets and that sort of thing, and. To the extent that it succeeded, it succeeded because private companies were able to innovate and do the work that was needed to make it happen. And if you look at what happened afterwards, you, what happened with NASA became sort of this bloated bureaucracy, and there were all you know it, it had there were there were there were all these programs that didn't really have like a, a, a real economic purpose, and it, it became this you know. So we're, what we're seeing today with the advent of private space ventures. You're seeing people who actually have kind of an economic vision, like Jeff Bezos talks about building the infrastructure for regular travel to space, and there's you know the potential of mining asteroids, and there's actual economic reasons for doing this. But it's but um, you know when the when the government does these things, it's not as you're saying they're not doing it um, in a way that the that uh, the economics of it makes sense. Um, and they're commandeering wealth that could be used for productive purposes and diverting them to these purposes for reasons other than economic productivity. Yeah, and it's, it's worth pointing out that uh, the fundamental reason that there's, a, there's going to be uh, 
bad economics in, in a government so-called investment scheme is that governments don't actually produce anything. Governments are good at one thing and one thing only. They're good at using force. And that's a good thing when they're using force uh, in a retaliatory way to protect people's rights. That's why government properly invests in uh, the military, which is it, you know, arguably part of what was going on with the moonshot. But uh, this, uh, when it comes to deciding what's a new form of energy where you need innovation, uh, and Biden throws around language of innovation and incentivizing innovation a lot in his policy proposals. Uh, there's another perversion here. I mean, private companies have plenty of incentive already to create innovative, efficient forms of energy. Uh, it, it doesn't make any, any sense to just throw away energy if you're trying to make a profit. You want to be able to use energy efficiently. Uh, but if private companies aren't already investing in some kind of technology, it's because their best judgment suggests they've looked at the facts. They don't think that the technology is cost effective there, or they don't think it will work well enough to provide the energy that they need to do what they're doing. Uh, so when what when government does its investment in a new technology, what it's basically doing is it's it's taxing the people who would otherwise spend money on other things to fund technology that those people don't think will actually work. That's not incentivizing innovation. It's, it's paternalistic government saying some people's judgment about what's actually effective can't be trusted, and we're going to stop them from exercising their judgment. That's something that disincentivizes real innovation. Yeah. So, and it, it's, it's the government sort of trying to pick winners and losers in the energy industry as opposed to letting the free market um, decide that. So I think we should, we should begin to uh, wrap up our discussion by talking about the, the most fundamental issue that's underneath all of this, and that's the, the philosophic ideas that are driving this entire agenda, this entire view of government investment and uh, the importance of protecting the environment. What would you say it is that's driving Biden on this front, and especially the more radical figures who are driving him? Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I do think there is a really fundamental perspective underneath all of this, whether, you know, whether Biden would articulate it or not, the, the environmentalist movement certainly articulates this. There's sort of a, a basic philosophical issue of, of man's relationship to nature. Um, but so let's unpack it a little bit. So when you look at a plan like a clean, these sort of clean energy plans like Biden's, right? The, the idea is to eliminate uh, greenhouse gas emissions while also supplying us with enough energy to meet our needs. And there's this idea that we can do this without having a negative effect on human well-being. But as we just discussed, you know, when you start to look at the details, you see that there, there really isn't any sort of realistic plan here, right? They talk about, you know, that there's always a lot of peppy cheerleading with these plans, how great it's going to be when you make all these investments in sustainable, clean energy. Um, but the reality and the facts tell, tell a completely different story. And then, you know, for me, so, so there really isn't a plan for um, getting us to a future that where we can meet our energy needs. And it's not just to have the conveniences that around us, but, you know, to, to in, enjoy the quality of life and, and to, you know, really life and death kinds of uh, uh, technologies that we rely on every day. You know, we need energy. We need a, We need the substantial amounts of energy that we have to to have these things. Um, so, there, when you look at the fact that there isn't really a plan, the idea that we can accomplish this with with uh, solar power and wind power is a complete fantasy. But then, you know, even beyond that, to me, like the piece of evidence that really clinches it for me is that even when it comes to solar and wind power. Um, so we're told on the one hand that, that we have to completely transform our energy to run on solar and wind in order to fight climate change, right? But then whenever you have a particular solar development proposal or a wind farm that somebody wants to build, who are the people that fight the hardest against those proposals? I mean, just I'll ask this as a question. I mean, who, do you, who do you think it is that fights the hardest against you know, a solar plant or a, or a wind installation. And maybe we should put that uh, picture up on the screen of, of what you're talking about here. I mean, I look at this and I think, 
uh, wow, this looks like a lot of uh, solar energy, maybe. Maybe it's the, uh, the fossil fuel companies who feel threatened by this because it's going <laughs> to cut into their margin. Is that, is that who you had in mind? Well, uh, I mean, that's a reasonable guess. But the, but the fact is that the people who actually fight the hardest against these things are the environmental groups. Right. So you be? showed the picture, you know, of, so the, the picture that you showed it is this, it's a huge solar facility in the Mojave Desert. Um, you know, when you drive from Los Angeles to from Southern California to Las Vegas, you see this thing on the road uh, as you head over there. Yeah, I've seen it. It's um, impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when this this thing almost didn't get built, because when it was under development, the people who were fighting it tooth and nail were environmental groups, you know, with names like the Desert Protective Council. And it's all on the grounds of how can you just, you know, despoil the habitat of the desert tortoise and the bighorn sheep and all this kind of mm. thing, right? It's on its environment, it, they're, they're fighting it on environmental ground. So this, this uh, transition to solar energy, which supposedly is essential to fight this existential crisis that we all face, environmental crisis, um, and it's environmental groups who are fighting it the hardest. So to me, you know, I think what this really reveals is, is these deeper premises underlying the environmentalist movement. And this is true whether people are, are admit this or not. Um, and I think it's, it's, the, it's what it reveals the logic of the premises that the goal of the environmentalist movement is not to improve mankind's quality of life or to ensure our long range survival and well-being. The goal is to protect nature from man, not for man. That's a phrase that Peter Schwartz uh, came up with. I was like that. Um, so, it's it the 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 in terms of man's relationship to the environment, man is viewed as a despoiler of nature. As as um, any actions that we take to preserve our life are are destructive of nature. Um, and this is the perspective that we have and the, and the goal of the environmentalist movement um, on all these kinds of issues is to stop us from having this, having any kind of impact on the natural world. Um, as opposed to, you know, what I think is a more rational goal, which is to, um, is to figure out how we can improve mankind's environment in order to promote human well-being. I mean, that's the goal that we should have. Ultimately, human life should be our standard and human well-being should be the standard that we judge these things by. It strikes me that that also illuminates the, uh, the typical attitude toward nuclear power that we were discussing before, because here's a case of a form of energy that is super abundant. Uh, you only need a very small amount of uranium to create a huge amount of power. It doesn't even have the impact on climate change. It doesn't produce any any carbon emissions. Uh, and so, you know, from a human perspective, and it's it's also incredibly safe. Like there have been so few actual nuclear disasters that have actually hurt anybody. Yeah. So it's from a human perspective, it's a complete boon. And yet the reason they object to it is not because of any scientific concerns, but because, well, there's going to be nuclear waste around for millions of years when we aren't here to care about it. So the focus is not on human welfare in the objections to, yeah, to and, nuclear and power. I mean, the, I mean, the nuclear industry is a victim of the same kind of scaremongering that we see today with climate change. I mean, the 70s, you know, 60s and 70s, nuclear power was, there were apocalyptic scenarios around that. Um, today we see the same, so, so it, there's a sort of alarmist uh, scaremongering that's disconnected from the facts that's used to kind of scare people into accepting this agenda. Um, so. I mean, the, the Fukushima story, I think, is the most interesting here because you have a you have a nuclear plant that melts down because there's a an, an earthquake and tsunami. I mean, the worst possible uh, threats you could throw at something, and and basically everybody. I mean, the the tsunami causes death and destruction in the city, but not there's not really any impact on human health from right. the meltdown itself. 
uh, you do have impact on human health in, in Chernobyl, of course, which is the, the one case where that happens in a bad way, which is it's not an accident. Probably this is, this is a product of the, uh, the Soviets who are committed to the whole government investment premise that, uh, that uh, Biden wants to uh, implement. And speaking yeah. of, yeah, go ahead. Well, let me just, I mean, there, you, there are, you have quotes from environmentalist leaders who say explicitly that, the go- that, that, if, that having cheap, abundant energy would be a disaster for human beings. And so they explicitly come out and say that, you know, because we would, uh, it would give us the ability to impact the earth too much. And what that really means, you know, for, you know from our perspective, it would give us the ability to transform the earth to make it more auspicious to human life and, and to improve the quality of life for more people and, and you know, to make our lives even better. That's what they're opposed to. And that really then gives the lie to some of the language that you see in the Biden proposals on energy, uh, where he says they're going to take aim against the companies that, so that quote, put profit over people and knowingly harm our environment and poison our communities, air, land, and water. Uh, but this, this completely ignores and leaves aside that cheap, abundant energy is something that, that people uh, actually need. And you know, to the extent that industries are profiting from that, they're profiting from providing an incredibly important human need uh, I think it really points to when we're talking about the concept of the environment, you have to be very clear what you're talking about, because uh, if it means anything that's valuable at all to anyone, it, you've got to specify who it's valuable to this environment. Environment just means your surroundings. So if it's the human environment that we want to improve, uh, one of the things that we need to do that, one of the things we need to shape the environment to our purposes is uh, abundant source of energy. But uh, that gets... Uh, that concept gets played around with to the point where it no longer includes humans. It's, it's the environment outside of us, independent of our interests. And right. well, what, what is the value of, produ- of uh, preserving that? Uh, the answer is not given. Um, I thought it would be a good idea here to uh, start to wrap up by sharing a quotation from Ayn Rand that I think captures this uh, observation that we've been trying to make over the last few minutes about what the real goal of the environmentalist movement is. If you if you look at her essay, The Anti-Industrial Revolution, she puts, uh, she characterizes their motivations in this way. She says, in confrontation with nature, their plea is, leave well enough alone. Do not upset the balance of nature. Do not disturb the birds, the forests, the swamps, the oceans. Do not anger the unknowable demons who rule it all. In their cosmology, man is infinitely malleable, controllable, and dispensable. Nature is sacrosanct. It's only man and his work, his achievement, his mind that can be violated with impunity, while nature is not to be defiled by a single bridge or skyscraper. They are worse than conservatives. They are conservationists. What do they want to conserve? Anything except man. What do they want to rule? Nothing except man. That's in her essay from 1971. Uh, the anti-industrial revolution. Um, Keith, did you did you uh, want to share the other? Do we want to share the other quote too? Do you think, or should we start to take questions? Um, well, I, we don't have a lot of questions. I think the the there's the the other quote. I like it because it it's um, it's from an article called "The Left, Old and New." And one of the things we've been looking at this week is the is the full spectrum of the Democrats' plans. Um, and you know, it's that Ayn Rand has a has a perspective on on how the left leftist liberals changed, you know, pre World War II and after World War II. Um, so why, I, I I can mute and you can read this one as well. Sure. Yeah. So. This is from an essay in the same collection as the anti-industrial revolution. She says, there was a time when the necessity of industrialization was the crusading slogan of Western liberals, which justified anything and whitewashed any atrocity, including the wholesale slaughter in Soviet Russia. We do not hear that slogan any longer. Confronted with a choice of an industrial civilization or collectivism, it is an industrial civilization that the liberals discarded. Confronted with a choice of technology or dictatorship, it is technology that they discarded. And skipping a bit, when they discovered the facts of reality involved, they declared that going barefoot is superior to wearing shoes. 
so much for their concern with poverty and with the improvement of human life on earth. Um, and that transition, Keith, between the old left and the new left is something that uh, Elon and Ankar talked about last uh, earlier this week on Monday, talking about the overview. Uh, actually, not, not this week. It was last week. Elon did a, uh, a podcast on Ayn Rand's critique of the left. And so people want to learn more uh, about that perspective. That is a good place to start. So yeah, I think we should uh, start to take questions. Um, if you have them, best place to put them is uh, on YouTube in Super Chat. I see we did get one generous uh, Christmas donation from someone in support of the channel here. Thank you for that. Um, if anyone wants to ask questions, or if that gentleman wants to ask questions, we'd be happy to take them through you, uh, YouTube yeah. Super Chat. Otherwise, uh, Q&A box on Zoom is a, good, is a good place also. I mean, so we have one question there from Judith who asks, if, do we think that stopping fossil fuels is not to stop their use per se, but to stop human activity that's possible because of their ease of access and use to reduce human activity? So yeah, I think that's right. And that is, so this question came early in the in the podcast. And I think that was a point that came out over the course of our, our discussion. So it is the day before Christmas Eve. Um, so our live attendance is probably lower than uh, it might normally be, but people can catch this on the recording. If we don't have a lot of questions, we could, uh, we can end, we can wrap up early. Um, well, one did just come in on the, on the problem of nuclear waste disposal. Uh, how extensive is that problem? I mean, I could say one thing, you probably know more, I, but... I mean, I'm not really an expert on that. My my understanding is that it's it's a non-issue. It's, it's part of the scaremongering that, oh, we've got this huge nuclear waste problem. We can't deal with it. There's no way to, no way to handle it. Uh, and it's going to, you know, kill people for centuries. My understanding is that it's, it, that, that's, it's, it's, it's a total non-issue. Uh, I mean, there's this huge underground complex that the federal government built, I think in Nevada called Yucca Mountain. Anybody can look up Yucca Mountain, yeah. uh, which was designed for this purpose to hold nuclear waste for thousands and thousands of years. And they even have uh, special pictograms, you know, to warn people from entering it if they don't know how to read English anymore or if aliens come or whatever. Uh, so like <laughs> there's plenty of, and they can hold like the entire nation's uh, nuclear fuel supply for, for, you know, centuries and centuries. Uh, as far as I understand, it, it's similar to what you've said before. There have been environmental groups who've objected to the use of it. So nothing's been transported there. Also, I think the, the states that the waste would have to pass through on railroads object to, its, uh, to, ha to that happening, uh, even though I think the uh, they have much worse uh, railroad accidents involving fossil fuel, uh, oil, oil uh, trains being derailed and causing huge fires. We wouldn't have to deal with that as much if we could just transport some nuclear waste. Um, one, yeah. I have one last question for you, Keith, uh, mm -hmm. if uh, as maybe a way out, uh, perhaps as a way of emphasizing that the, the point that we've been making here isn't that uh, there's no point ever in trying to develop alternate forms of energy. What's the most famous example of this in Ayn Rand's fiction? <laughs> Well, actually, uh, I um, so I have an article where I so I, I wanted to mention that some of these issues that we've been talking about are vulnerability to climate and the energy issues. I have articles where I go into these in great detail. I know you're going to put the put the links up at the end, but the the energy article opens with the discussion of of you know, this, this amazing science fiction motor <laughs> in Atlas Shrugged that draws on uh, static electricity from the atmosphere. Uh, I assume that's what you're referring to. Yes, yes, Galt's, <laughs> Galt's motor. Yeah. Uh, I've actually read that there are, there have been real attempts to, to get uh, static electricity power of that kind. I think they've turned out to just not be energy efficient enough yet, which is yeah, I don't the same think, issue I, as the other. I, I think you'd run into a similar issue as you would with solar and wind, that it's just, there's just not enough there to draw on so yeah good that, right, will, yes. that will probably remain an element of science fiction i think unfortunately whereas whereas the oil shale uh you know that that appear that that's discussed in the book i mean that's an element of science fiction that actually you know to that, be prophetic <laughs> it was prophetic yeah so i think we should wrap up with some resources 
for people who want to learn more about this. And the first place I'll point is to Ayn Rand herself. I, we read a passage from the anti-industrial revolution that's in the book Return of the Primitive. Uh, I didn't get a chance to add to this slide the old left, the left old and new, which is also in that volume, Return of the Primitive. Some of the issues that I was discussing about the concept of investment and the way in which government can't engage in investment, uh, those are covered in Ayn Rand's essay, Egalitarian and, and inf Egalitarianism and Inflation, which is in her collection, Philosophy Who Needs It. Also, I'd like to point to some of the work of my co-host today, uh, Keith Lockett, has produced a number of very rich articles on these issues over the years. The one that we talked about as having just come out today on New Ideal is called Pandemic Exposes the Reality of a Low-Carbon Economy. If you're listening, you can go to bit.ly slash pandemic low carbon uh, to get a direct link to that on New Ideal. Uh, there's also a, a lengthier article that we, I believe, re-released on New Ideal some months ago uh, about the war against energy and how the, you know, Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal is an expression of that. You can read that by going to bit.ly slash green war. And a really valuable article, which I learned a lot from, which touches on some of the things that we discussed at the beginning of the episode today, about how if the climate is changing, the thing that you need most to be able to deal with the vicissitudes of a changing climate is industrial capitalism and the energy that it makes available. Uh, there's a lengthy journal article that we've republished on the ARI site that you can read by Keith uh, called Climate Vulnerability and the Indispensable Value of Industrial Capitalism. That's at bit.ly slash climate vulnerability. If you have questions that you'd like to ask us about things that came up today, send us an email to newideal at einrand.org. We read all the email that comes in. We answer many of them. And if you have ideas for future episodes, we sometimes take you up on those ideas too. Otherwise, that's all I've got. Uh, thanks, Keith, for joining us today. And uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to everyone in our audience. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.